Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Welcome to the second and hopefully final, at least for a while, Mulvaney-less episode of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. I am Eric Raskin, trying desperately not to expose myself as the Garfunkel or Scolari of this duo in Kieran's absence. My podcast partner will be back from his journey through the Arctic next week. But in the meantime, it's me and a guest co-host for the second week in a row. If you missed last week's podcast where I was joined by Al Bernstein, please do check that out. Al was great. And for the second straight week, I'm about to have a Hall of Famer sit in as co-host, the great Barry Tompkins, the voice of Showbox and the voice of too many boxing networks to keep track of over the course of my lifetime, will be joining me in just a moment. Uh, But first, let me just go over the rundown for the show. Due to timing and Barry's travel schedule and availability, he and I aren't going to be able to talk about this past weekend's fights together. So a little experiment here. I'm going to do that part solo, very much in the style of the old Mulvaney ESPN heavy-hitting boxing podcast. Uh, Just me and a microphone, so have your thumb near the fast-forward button when we get there. Also, at the end of the podcast, you'll get to hear an interview Kieran and I conducted shortly before his trip began with International Boxing Hall of Fame Executive Director Ed Brophy about recent changes to the Hall's induction policies and some of Ed's other thoughts on boxing, past and present. So that's all coming up. But first, Barry and I will discuss the latest news in boxing and preview this coming weekend's fights. So let's get right to it. I am honored to welcome to the podcast, as my guest co-host this week, a 2017 inductee of the International Boxing Hall of Fame. You know him as the voice of Showbox, the new generation since 2012. But depending on how far you go back, you might also know him as the voice of Fox Sports Boxing and ESPN Boxing and HBO Boxing and, of course, the fight that changed the trajectory of the Cold War, Balboa versus Drago. The one and only Barry Tompkins is here. Barry, thanks for joining me on the podcast this week. Eric, really happy to be with you. Always happy to talk boxing with you. All right, excellent. I, I'm just curious, after I gave you that, that intro, do you get recognized more for uh, Rocky Four than anything else uh, from randoms on the street? More than anything I've ever done in my career. Okay. <laughs> you know? I mean, in fact, probably twice as much as anything I've ever done in my career. All right. And usually people include it in an introduction more than anything I've done in my career. Ah, so I've, I've I followed... know, maybe that maybe that speaks to my career. Eric. I don't know. <laughs> now I feel bad. I've fallen into the trap of, of rolling out a cliche when introducing you. Oh, well. <laughs> All right. Well, this is perfect timing for bringing you on as the guest co-host, since there is a showbox card to preview. But uh, first, we're going to take a quick dip into the news of the week and the biggest news by far is that finally, after months of searching and negotiating and postponing, Canelo Alvarez has a fall opponent. On November 2nd, he'll move up to light heavyweight and take on Sergei Kovalev, and not at a catchweight, but at the 175-pound limit. Uh, As Kieran and I have discussed on the podcast, if we weren't going to get Canelo Golovkin 3, this fight made the next most sense for all involved. Uh, Barry, did you have any real doubts over the past couple of weeks? Like once Kovalev beat Anthony Yard, any doubts about whether this fight was going to come together? Uh, no, I was pretty certain, Eric. I mean, I felt pretty certain that it was going to happen once Kovalev got that win. It was not an easy win, obviously. But uh, And I find this card, to be honest with you, I find this fight probably more compelling than Canelo and triple G, you know, I, and, and my thinking about it is I, I, I honestly think that Canelo is, if not on the other side of the mountain, he's at the very top of the mountain. And, and I think triple G is kind of on the other side of the mountain already. And so even though the same thing can be said about Kovalev 
uh, I think, you know, going up in weight and fighting at 175 pounds could be the equalizing factor. So I'm really interested in this fight. I mean, this is a fight that I would buy to watch. Okay, yeah, that that two weight class leap is always compelling when it happens, and it it's it's not often that a middleweight champ moves up to fight a light heavyweight champ, and the middleweight is actually viewed as a huge favorite. Uh, but that is the case. The sports books have Canelo as about a four to one or even five to one favorite. Uh, so this is a, a weird question to be asking, but uh, do you give Kovalev much of a chance here? <laughs> it is weird, and no, I don't. To be honest with hmm. you, I. I mean, I do think he's kind of at the end, and I'm not sure what he's got left. You know, I think probably the Andre Ward fights took an awful lot out of Kovalev, and and out of Ward for that matter. I'm glad that he is not fighting anymore. Mm. But um, I I just don't know what's there. I'm I'm kind of anxious to see, quite frankly, what is there. That's what makes this fight compelling to me. Not so much who's going to win it, because I think all things being equal, I think Canelo wins this fight probably with relative ease. Yeah, th- that's that's how I feel. I, I get why he's a big favorite. I view him as a big favorite. And, you know, just th- not that there's a deep history of, uh, of the, the best middleweight moving up to fight uh, the best light heavyweight, uh, but it, it's happened a few times. And when the middleweight is simply better, he tends to do okay. Uh, we had in modern uh, the modern era, we had Hopkins moving up and uh, beating Antonio Tarver in what was considered an upset uh, in the moment. And of course, most famously, Sugar Ray Robinson probably would have beaten Joey Maxim if the fight had been indoors. Uh, so may- maybe yeah. maybe Kovalev needs to figure out where it'll be 110 degrees on November 2nd and have the fight there. Yeah, he can join me here in Florida. That's about the temperature <laughs> where I am right now. But... Uh, but yeah, I, and I think you're absolutely right. Um, I, I, I just, I, I've been trying to find a way that I can see Kovalev being, you know, being competitive in this fight. I think the other thing too, I mean, if you look at Sugar Ray Robinson's body back in the day and you look at, at Bernard Hopkins' body back in the day, I think 175 pounds was probably really pushing the limits for them. But if you look at Canelo, he's, his body type, it seems to me, can probably carry 175 pounds and he probably, I don't think he'll really lose anything. I mean, he's not, you know, he's not the quickest fighter in the world anyway. That's not really his style. Mm-hmm. So I just, again, just going by body types and, and what I think Canelo might be able to carry, I don't see 175 really being a big problem for him. Yeah, that's that's a great point. I mean, we saw him at 168, and no, the opposition wasn't much when he fought Rocky Fielding, but he certainly looked comfortable at the weight. It, we hear he walks around, I don't know, 180s, some somewhere in that range when he's not in training camp. So, uh, yeah, I don't know that he's given away certainly a couple inches in height, but in overall size, I don't even expect that he'll be giving away too much in the ring when this uh, when the bell rings. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, again, I think the biggest question in this fight is about Kovalev, not so much about Canelo. I mean, obviously, it'll be asked, you know, can Canelo do 175? Will he have the same power, same strength at 175? Can he body punch at 175 the way he does, you know, 160 or even 168? But I still think the bigger questions will be asked of Kovalev. Yep. All right, so there's no other major news to report this week, but there is a minor thing worth touching it on. Uh, did did you get a chance to see Derek Chisora's press conference rant this past week? <laughs> yes, I did. Okay. You know, I mean, you know, every time, don't you find this interesting? Every time 
you think, okay, now I've seen everything in a press conference <laughs> that somebody comes along and, you know, here's something else. Somebody's singing another tune. You know, I, yeah, I, I, I don't know what you make of it. And I'm interested to know what you do make of it. But I, to me, it was A, over the top, and B, you know, if you're going to get into that sort of thing, isn't that something that probably should have been done and negotiated way before the press conference? Right. The, the fa- right. So just in case anyone didn't see it, the basic gist was that this was at, at the presser to announce his fight with Joseph Parker. And that's the co-feature to Regis Progray versus Josh Taylor. And, and that's a key detail that it's the co-feature because Chisora basically went off on how he's the main event. He's the ticket seller. Uh, lots of F-bombs were dropped. Uh, there was one reference to Vaseline, which uh, you can use your imagination as to the context if you didn't see it. Um, yeah, I tend to generally find this stuff fun as long as it doesn't cross certain lines. And of course, as long as nobody gets physically hurt. Um, but, you know, sometimes they go across those lines. There, there was um, earlier this year when Adrian Broner took aim directly at our, our friend Al Bernstein. That felt to me like a, a crossing of a line. But so I don't know. I mean, you've been around this sport for, for a long time. I, I was curious if this sort of stuff makes you even bat an eye anymore. But it sounds like this one at least got your attention. Yeah, you know, it, it, it definitely did. I, I mean, I can really see it if you're trying to sell tickets. Mm-hmm. And, and in the past, a lot of it used to be, you know, kind of wink, wink, you know. And, and it was really, the idea was just to sell tickets. I mean, you and I both know fighters. And for the most part, fighters have great respect for other fighters. Mm-hmm. Even if they're trying to sell tickets and they, t- you know, they tell you how much they hate the other guy. In the end, when they hug after a fight, you know this as well. That, that's for real. I mean, fighters respect fighters because nobody else in their right mind would get, get in there and do that. Right. You know, and, uh, and so I, I'm all for it when it's just trying to sell tickets. And even though you play it serious, serious, and one guy's the heavy and one guy's the victim, you know, that's all well and good when it comes to selling tickets. But I don't think, I think it's gone beyond it. I think what set the tone for it was Mayweather and McGregor, you mm. know, and now, you know, now people are kind of, following suit. I, I have the sense that when he first sat down there, he probably did not have it in his mind that he was going to go off. Hmm. But first of all, one of the first questions he asked, who's the main event? Am I the main event? I mean, wouldn't you think he might know that by that time? <laughs> right. You know? And I don't know. It just seemed to me to be, it's not something you do in a public forum and it's not going to sell tickets. If anybody it's going to turn them off, you know, if anything, uh, I think, you know, especially he being a Brit and he being, you know, the, he was saying he's the guy that's selling all the tickets. Well, I think when he does that, people are going to say, the hell with this guy. I don't think this guy. <laughs> right. I mean, you, you just never know with Chisora. He's one of these guys who always see has seemed like he's got a screw loose or half a screw loose. Or, so it's really hard to tell in a situation like this. Did he come in planning to do this? Uh, and, you know, maybe he maybe it was planned and he was just a good actor at selling the idea that he was sort of questioning it on the spot. But uh, then again, maybe, yeah, it, this was all just happening uh, in the moment, him realizing he's not the main event and somehow that bothering him. But I, I think you're right. It's it's ultimately not going to sell much. I mean, Regis Progray versus Josh Taylor is a good fight. That's what will will bring people out to the arena that night, I imagine. Yeah, you know, I mean, my feeling was if if he really thought he could sell that many tickets, why not take less money up front and try to get a piece of the gate? Hmm. Yeah, uh, you should you should maybe uh, be the be the promoter uh, negotiating here, and uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm not I sure. If I was the promoter, 
there'd be 12 people on a park bench watching that fight. <laughs> but but you might be uh, able to out-negotiate Derek Chisora, at least uh, put him in a tough spot. So Perhaps. There's that. Perhaps. All right. <laughs> All right, let's talk some showbox. Um, this Friday, September 20th at 10.30 p.m. Eastern Time, live from La Hacienda Event Center in Midland, Texas, we have a triple header, six young fighters, uh, a total of two losses among them. The show opens with Brandon Lee against Milton Arauz, then Ruben Villa takes on Jose Vivas. Uh, but let's talk first about the main event, Michael Dutchover versus Thomas Matisse, 10 rounds in the lightweight division. Uh, Dutchover made his showbox debut in May, knocking out Roziki Cristobal in the first round with a devastating body shot. Uh, the fight barely lasted half a round. Were we able to learn anything about Dutchover? Like, did you have any sense coming into this fight of how for real this kid is or isn't? One thing I know, he's a good body puncher. Yep. You know, <laughs> I mean, um, we had an idea this kid had a pretty big upside. And and the other thing I should mention, he was a great kid. Okay. You know, he's just that kind of kid you really wish him success. Um, we don't really know. I mean, obviously, school is still out. He took care of business as he should have in that last fight. But I think this probably will be, it was certainly will be more of a test for him because he's fighting a live guy. Um, you know, so I think, I think we'll know a lot more about him, you know, after next Friday than we do right now. But I think he does have a really big upside, you know, had a long amateur career and that, uh, in, at least in the minds of a lot of people at Showtime, that goes a long way. And, um, I like him, you know, I, and I, I could be being blinded a bit because I like him personally, hmm. um, but I do. I think he's got a big upside. I don't know that we've really seen it necessarily in the ring yet, but I think this is a really good test for him. I really do. I think Thomas Matisse is, you know, the, the perfect guy for him to be fighting at this point because he's a live body and he does have some ability. And, you know, it, it wouldn't shock me completely if he actually lost the fight to Matisse. Hmm. Yeah. Well, Matisse is certainly a strange case. I mean, this is a guy who's been on Showbox four times already, uh, and he's gone two one and one officially in those fights. Uh, easily could have had a couple more losses on his record. You're absolutely right, uh, calling him a live body. He he's proved that uh, you know he he's not going to be a pushover for anyone, but he also hasn't put together a complete performance really yet, and he's 29 years old. So. Is there a certain amount of what you see is what you get with, with Thomas Matisse? Well, I think that's what we're going to find out, you know. Mm -hmm. And again, that's what I love about this series. You know, I, I have no problem selling Showbox, you know, because, and believe me, there have been plenty of fights I've done over the years. Al Bernstein and I used to do a lot of fights at, at ESPN where before the Open, we would look at each other and say, who the hell would watch this? <laughs> you know? and, and then, of course, you have to go on the air and say, boy, this is going to be one of the greatest fights <laughs> right. boxing, you know. So... Uh, but that's not so in, in, with Showbox. You know, I mean, I, I, what the whole mission of the show is is to test fighters for the first time against, as we said earlier, you know, live bodies, and 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 that's what we have really, not just in the main event, but but I hope in all three of these fights. I'm not as I'm not as convinced in a couple of the others, but but this one, I I definitely think so. And yeah, it is a last hurrah fight for for Thomas Matisse, and he does seem to have some skills. But, he, you know, he always has struck me as one of those guys who fights 
either just well enough to win or just bad enough to lose. Right. You know, and I don't, I don't know where the real Thomas Matisse is. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I think everyone would agree that on paper Dutch over is, is the favorite here and, and the, the A side He's 21 years old. Um, but also that this is the sort of step up fight that we're used to seeing on Showbox. that Matisse is his toughest opponent so far. So yeah, it, it's Matisse that I'm really intrigued whether, if he has the same sense that we have, that this is kind of the last chance to, to prove uh, that he can win at this level. Um, if he feels that way, maybe he'll fight with, with more urgency because of it. I, I don't know. We'll see. But certainly from, from our perspective, we're kind of in agreement that this is last chance to, he's got to really, if not win, at least really push Dutch over uh, to, to prove he deserves another shot. Yeah, we haven't seen that, you know, that sense of urgency that you see in a lot of, you know, top shelf fighters. Mm-hmm. I, I just haven't seen that from him. I mean, when he when he beat uh, Ch- uh, Chizora, uh, Chinaya, I beg your pardon, mm-hmm. uh, when he beat Chinaya, uh, you know, he had a rally to win that fight. He knocked him out, but he probably lost. I think I don't remember the round. I think it was a ninth round, something like that. But he probably lost the first eight. You know? Right. And and that's kind of what he's done. I mean, against Hamazarian, the first fight uh, was one of the worst decisions I've ever seen in 40 years of doing this. I mean, it was horrific. It was terrible. He didn't right. win, not only did he win the fight, I'm not sure he won more than a round or two. Hmm. And they gave him a split decision. That was just terrible. And and the draw was probably a little bit more legitimate. In fact, you probably could have made a better case for him winning the fight that ended in a draw than you could have for him winning the fight that he won on the scorecards. Right. So we'll see. We'll see what he brings to the dance. You know, I think the other side of the coin too, Eric, is, is uh, Dutch Rovers fighting at home in Midland, Texas. And a lot of fighters will tell you, not only fighters, athletes in almost, in almost any sport, that sometimes it's harder to fight at home than it is to fight on the road because you got everybody in your ear, you got all your homies hanging around, mm-hmm. you know, you got you you're a ticket salesman, you're trying to sell tickets, or people are nagging you for tickets. Can I get a ticket? Can I do this? Can I do that? And your mind is on everything else except the fight. So I, I think there's there's a bit of an onus on Dutch over too, although as I said, I think he's the type of kid that can handle it. Right. Yeah, the the hometown thing is an important thing to point out. Kieran and I have been talking about that a lot this year because it, we've had a bunch of those fights. There was uh, Javante Davis uh, at home. We had one of the Charlo twins was fighting at home. And then the one who slipped up was uh, Jared Hurd uh, went home and, and lost his perfect record. So, uh, yeah, sometimes you see these guys come into these fights uh, at home a little distracted, not on their A game. But, yeah, you've you've spent uh, some time in, in Dutch Over's presence. And uh, if uh, it's, it seems he strikes you as the kind of mature, focused 21-year-old who is not likely to get too thrown off by that. Yeah, real high-character guy. You know, and one of those guys, and, and you've been around the sport for a long time, so I'm, I'm preaching the choir here, but he's, you know, he's he's one of those guys that you almost wish for to to be a champion because he not only would be a good champion, he'd be good for the sport. Right. He's just a, He's just a good kid, just a solid kid. All right, well, in the co-feature, and this is a case where, in my view, the co-feature and main event are really pretty interchangeable. I, I don't think that either fight is necessarily bigger or better than the other. Uh, but at featherweight, 16-0, Ruben Villa meets 17-0, Jose Vivas. Uh, Villa, Villa has been inactive for 133 days, or just a shade over three months. And that's the longest inactive streak of his career, which that's great. That tells you that, that he's being moved the way a prospect is supposed to be moved if he's never been off for even three months before. Um, I'm impressed with him all around as a prospect. Really slick kid. 
You've gotten to see him a couple of times on Showbox now. How impressed have you been with Ruben Villa? Very, uh, as you. Um, if, and again, I'm being redundant here, but he's also a really solid kid. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, real, real family-oriented kid. He lives in Salinas, which I live out in California. It's a valley town. Speaking of 190 degrees, Salinas has that all summer <laughs> long, and that's where he works, and that's where he, that's where he trains. That's where he's from. Very proud of his community. Uh, big talent, I think. Long amateur career. Uh, boxer, 100% a boxer. And I, I would guess the only thing I would like to he's, – he's answered every question that I would have about him. He has a great jab. He's very active, throws a lot of punches, and is very effective when he throws punches. Not a big knockout guy. Right. Uh, if, if a knockout's going to come, it's going to come cumulatively. He's certainly not a one-punch guy by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, but, but big skills, big skills. The, and the only question I would have of him, as I do of most boxers, is let's see what happens when he gets hit. Now right. he's been clever enough not to get hit. But, you know, he's fighting, again, a live body. It's a guy we don't know very much about. But he does have a little pop and uh, he's going to be aggressive. He's going to be right in Via's face. Um, probably the downside of that for him is that I'm sure that's exactly what Via wants. Yeah. It could play right into him. Yeah. I mean, speaking of that stylistic matchup. So uh, yeah, Vivas, as, as you said, not a guy we're as familiar with. He's from Mexico. He's only fought in America once, but based on what I've seen, he's more of a pressure fighter. You know, he'll be the bull via will be the matador. And um, last week on the podcast, Al Bernstein dropped a Johnny Tapia reference. Uh, so he's inspired me to do the same that stylistically, this could have hints of Tapia Romero, um, which, of, of course, would favor Via, who is the Tapia in this situation. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I don't know how much of Vivas you've had a chance to study yet, but uh, whether you could get any sort of a sense of, of how live an underdog he is. It sounds like you're with me that stylistically he might play right into the hands of Ruben Villa. Yeah, no, I, I I definitely am with you on that. Uh, that is a good, I think, a good analogy by Al. I. I would say Tapia is good. I mean, you know, the the guy that, of course, people talk about in the same sentence, and I'm not sure if he's quite to that status yet, is Lomachenko. And, uh, you know, I, in fact, I'm, he's not at that status. <laughs> right, <yet>. right. <laughs> but, but, but not too many people are. But um, he's got those kind of skills. And, you know, also had a long amateur career. I, I have looked at video of, of Vivas, and uh, it's hard to tell because you really, I don't know about the caliber of opposition that he's fighting. Right. Um, you know, he, and he's not a one punch knockout guy, but he does have power. So, you know, I think it's a good test. I can't see Vivas winning the fight. Um, and via, you know, he's, he's moving pretty rapidly and, yes. and, uh, talented kid, talented kid. Like I said, the only, for me, the only question is, let's see what happens when he gets hit. Yeah, and, and the CompuBox stats back up uh, that that assertion that he's a talented kid in the plus-minus stat, where it measures the percentage of your punches that land versus the percentage of your opponent's punches that land. Via is a plus twenty-one, which is that's Mayweather-esque stuff. Now, granted, it's against prospect-level opposition so far, but I think it gives you a sense of, of how skilled uh, Ruben Via is. Yeah, I don't think there's any question about it. And, and you know, for me too, it's not only about his hands. And he does have very quick hands, quick hands, and he is very busy. He's got great feet, yes. you know, and he gets people turned. And he's, you know, for a guy who really, you know, hasn't had, he's only had, what, 17 fights, he's, uh, he's really skilled. You know, he, he gets, like I said, he turns people. He, he gets there with these little short shots. 
he's a very talented fighter. You know, I'm trying to think of, of others who have come along that quickly who have that skill set. And I, I can't really think of too many. You know, again, I'm not going to go as far as saying Lomachenko, but if he's not in the same sentence, maybe at least he's in the same paragraph. Right. (laughs) Even that might be a reach. But again, that's because it's uh, Vasily Lomachenko. That's not a not a knock on uh, on Ruben Villa. Certainly it's just how many guys are even in that paragraph. But uh, but yeah, the promise is certainly there. Um, Speaking of promise in the opening bout, we get a look at Brandon Lee. He's a highly regarded welterweight prospect. He's taking on Milton Arauz of Nicaragua. Surely the last human being to have been named Milton. Uh, I think that name went out of style about 60 years ago, but here, here's a Milton especially who's in his 20s. One, especially, especially the last one in Nicaragua. Right. You know? <laughs> right. Well, who, or who knows? I don't spend a lot of time in Nicaragua. Maybe it's a very common name there. Uh, I don't know. But, uh, um, but anyway. Uh, all, the, all those Milton Burrow fans. Yeah. Maybe, you know, maybe Uncle Milty just started uh, in replays in Nicaragua a, a generation exactly. ago and they started naming all their kids Milton. Could be. We don't know. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so uh, Brandon Lee uh, is managed by Cameron Duncan. Uh, he's 20 years old. And listen to this list of fighters that he's sparred with. Uh, Tim Bradley, Mikey Garcia, Maurice Hooker, Mauricio Herrera, Felix Diaz, Joel Diaz, Virgil Ortiz, Devin Haney, and Ryan Garcia. Um, so I don't think he's going to be awed by Milton Arauz. Um, on the on the most recent Showbox show, Lee fought on the off-TV undercard. Uh, you saw him knock out Francisco Medel in 31 seconds, uh, and that was his sixth straight first-round knockout. Um, I'm mostly in the dark about uh, Arauz. I presume you are too. But how excited are you about getting a look at Brandon Lee on Showbox? Yeah, it's much more about getting a look at Brandon Lee, obviously, than it is at, at our own. But, uh, yeah, 30 seconds we saw him the previous time. It was very much like Michael Dutchover. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he's got power. I mean, you can just tell he sets down on everything. He's, and I think he's fat, being fast-tracked. I think this is – my guess is we will see him again very soon on uh, on Showbox um, and that this is just a first test and let's see how this goes and let's get him through this and – and let's see where he goes from here. But my sense is he's being fast-tracked, and I think with good reason, and like all those guys that he sparred with, uh, you talk to any of them about him, and they're all, you know, they all kind of open their eyes and say, you know, this kid can fight. So, uh, you know, when you're hearing it from the people who he spars, who, who themselves are very talented, uh, you know the guy's got the goods. Uh, again, you can't judge from the last fight. He got a guy out of there, you know, in 30 seconds. Right. Uh, and the guy was down, I think, maybe even before he got hit. I don't know. But... Uh, <laughs> But, but he's a big talent, and and I don't think we're going to learn a lot, frankly, in this fight, but I do think he's on a fast track. Okay. All right, so that's Friday's Showbox card, and we'll, we'll cut it off there and let you save some of your material for, you know, the actual broadcast. That's uh, it. That's, that's all I got, Eric. That's all I got. I and that's, that's right. That's all, that's all we need on Showbox. But we do have a, a couple other things to hit on uh, because uh, there are other fights this weekend uh, coming up, although not many. The, the schedule of fights uh, coming up this weekend is is pretty thin. The only notable televised card is on FS1 from Bakersfield, California, where the main event is Peter Quillen versus Alfredo Angulo. 
And I don't know about you, Barry, but uh, I shudder a bit when I see that Angulo is fighting, especially against a world-class guy like Quillen, who can punch with authority. Um, Showbox is far and away the best card on TV next weekend. We can say that much after looking at this other card. <laughs> For sure. um, anything to say about Quillen or Angulo at this point, or uh, or, or shall we move I, on I, uh, to something more I, fun? Uh, <laughs> well, you know, I, I just don't know why the fight's being made, to be honest with you, uh, yeah. or who made it. You know, uh, and who does it benefit? I mean, sure, it'll it'll be a W for Quillen. Is that a reason to have the fight? <laughs> and I, I, I frankly hate to see Angulo fight again. You know, I, I, I hated to see him fight Sergio Mora. Yeah. You know, and that was what two years ago. Yeah. You know. So. Uh, yeah, I really, I mean, yeah, when his fight against Canelo, I thought was kind of the end of the road for him. It, it looked, he just looked so slow in that fight, and then here we are five years later, and he's still going. And uh, unfortunately, we see that too often in boxing. Yeah, much too often, and I hate to see it in this case, too. And frankly, as we said, I think it's a fight that it's too bad that the fight was made. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, let's end on uh, with, with something a little more upbeat and fun, just as I did with Al last week. Let's do a little lightning round of quick questions for you before I let Ooh. you go. All right. And uh, okay. I'm, I got to warn yep. you, the, the first one is going to be the toughest one. Uh, here it is. Okay. Uh, you're on a sinking ship, and there's only room for one other person in your lifeboat. Who gets the other seat, Steve Farhood or Raul Marquez? <laughs> uh, well, I, I'll give you a curveball answer here. Okay. Uh, Gordon Hall, who is our executive <laughs> producer, would get that seat. And the reason is he signs all three of our checks. And if he weren't there... We wouldn't be on the boat. <laughs> okay, that is that is a good amp answer. That is in some ways uh, very smart and diplomatic. Uh, in other yes, ways, a cop out answer. It, it's it? a bit of a cop out, but a, a smart cop out. But nevertheless, I am going to uh, tell Steve and Raul what you said. Sorry. <laughs> um, all right. Next question. Uh, when the dust clears in a year or two, which heavyweight is left standing? Uh, how about? George Foreman. You know? <laughs> hey, don't count him out. <laughs> no, you know, I, I, that would seem to be an easy answer. And, and for me, it's not because, I, you know, we don't know yet if Joshua was exposed. Well, I mm -hmm. think we'll probably find out a little bit more in Saudi Arabia. Um, you know, we, uh, the, the Deontay Wilder, again, as we talked about with, with Via, I want to see him get hit, you know, and, and he has been, but he's also been rocked. And mm -hmm. so, I, but I don't know who I, I thought Joshua would be a guy who would probably provide that, but now I'm not so sure, you know? Uh, and so the, the answer to your question may be fury, you right. know, I, I think he may be, he's certainly a better boxer, you know, um, as long as he takes care of himself and treats himself like a champion and, you know, stays in the kind of shape that he's in, I'm not too sure, but that he might not be the last man standing. Yeah. And I, I just like the fact that we can have a question like that and a conversation like that without a, cl a very clear answer. I think that speaks well of where the heavyweights, at least up at the top, where the heavyweight division is right now. It's really interesting at the top. My next question, I, I know you're a San Francisco guy, uh, Montana over Brady or has Brady surpassed him? Well, you know, in rea if I'm asked, if you're asking me the question with my heart or with what I might know about the game, you know, I, I would have to say Brady has surpassed him, but my heart would still be Joe Montana. Okay. You know, I, I, you know, like they always say, there's that a similar question in the NBA of, you know, you've got two seconds left, 
who do you want to take that shot? You know, and and if that if the question were posed that way, I would say I want Joe Montana to take that shot. Okay. You know, I, he he was the the two minute quarterback that I would rather have than anybody. I think. Okay, fair enough. Um, this might be a tough one. Uh, you've worked with lots of great color analysts over the years. Anyone you wish you'd gotten to call a fight with, but never did? Uh, you know, maybe go Clancy, although I, you know, because I just liked him and, mm-hmm. uh, and we never did a fight together, but I, um, I, I, I'll tell you, Eric, I've been so blessed with really good color commentators and color commentators whom I, I not only like, but we're close, like Alan and Steve are two of my closest friends. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so I did nine years with Al and I've done now nine years with Steve or eight years with Steve. And, you know, those are, I, I love both those guys. I quite frankly think for the most part, I would rather have a broadcaster or a journalist sitting alongside me than I would an ex-fighter. Um, because honestly, I think they see the big picture better than fighters. Now I, you know, I have the best of both because right. I have Steve <laughs> who I can give him, you know, I can throw anything at Steve and I know it's coming back. You know, I don't have to think for him. Mm-hmm. And, and I believe me, I've had other people where I got, if I ask something or say something in the back of my head, it's saying what's coming back. I have no <laughs> idea what's coming back or am I going to go, you know? Right. And, and, and I have, and Raul, who I really believe I have a lot of, uh, of, um, Good feelings about Raul, and the reason I do is that he wants to be as good a broadcaster as he was a fighter, and and I don't think that can be said about a lot of fighters who are doing broadcasting now. You know, I, I'm not going to mention any names, but you know, they, they you know they say I fought, I can do this. You know, wrong. You know, <laughs> and and uh, I think I think Raul really does it well. I like Andre Ward. I think Andre Ward yeah, he's good. does a really good job, and he does his homework. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, he when he walks in there, he's not walking in there just as a guy who was an ex fighter. He knows about the guys who were in that fight, right? You know, and he's talked to them, and and uh, I that's what it takes. So it's a backhanded way of answering your question, but I've never had anybody I would just say don't give me that person again. I have in other sports, but not in boxing. Okay, and um, you know, so no, I've been I've been really lucky. Look, I had. You know, I had Ray Leonard and and and, uh, and Larry Merchant for all those years at at HBO, and then I had Al at ESPN, and then I had Rich Morata when all yep. years at Fox, who I really like and have great admiration for, and I got Steve. You know, right? I mean, how lucky have I been? You know? <laughs> yeah, it's a pretty good it's a pretty good run you're on, I would say. Yeah. Um, well, you mentioned uh, Ray Leonard, one of your uh, one of your long ago partners. Uh, that sets up my fifth and final question for you, uh, Leonard Hagler. You were calling the fight live, so obviously not scoring it in the moment. Uh, I assume you've watched it again since then. Who do you think won? Or perhaps I should ask, how do you like it? <laughs> Very good. <laughs> um, you know, and it's funny, that line, I don't even remember saying that line. People ask me about it all the time. You know, it, it was just one of those lines in a broadcast that you just say, and I don't know where it came from, and I, and until people reminded me about it, I, I didn't remember saying it. But, um, I, you know, I, I have to give you kind of a backstory on, okay. on how all that how that fight transpired and all that sort of stuff. But Ray and I were doing the Hagler-Duran fight in Las Vegas, and... Um, and at the end of that fight, Duran came over and stuck his head between the ropes and said to Ray, you can beat this guy. 
And I know that was the moment that Ray decided he was going to come back and he was going to try to fight Marvin Hagler. Hmm. So now cut to about six months later, maybe three, four months later, we were doing a fight in Miami. And, uh, and Ray called me up and said, hey, let's go have lunch. And so we're sitting at lunch, and, uh, and Ray said, uh, you want to know how to beat Marvin Hagler? Here's how you beat Marvin Hagler. And he said, you got to have three flurries in the fight of 15 seconds each. Usually one early in the round, one in the middle of the round, and the, the last 15 seconds of the fight, you got to have a big flurry. And, uh, and now, well, a year later, however long it was, comes the fight, and that is exactly what he did in the fight. And that's how he won the fight, in my right. opinion. I still think he won the fight, but but when I say win, it's a win with quotations around it. I think he stole the fight. Gotcha. You know, but that's exactly what he intended to do. Right. So so my feeling is still that he won the fight. Right. Didn't necessarily prove superiority per se, but in terms of rounds, he managed to sneak out uh, seven or more of them and uh, and and steal steal the fight and the decision basically. In the eyes, in the eyes of the judges, I'm not even telling you he won all those rounds. Okay, you know, I'm saying he stole them. <laughs> okay, you know? so you're so you're fully copping out again and not quite uh, revealing who you felt won. Uh, don't well, tell me, don't tell me, Gordon won. Hall I, won the fight. I, no, 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 that was a cop out. No, uh, no, I do. I think Ray won the fight. I really do. But he won it in the exactly the manner that he had told me a year or six months, whatever it was earlier. You know, he right. and which is to say that he stole the fight. You know, right. I think Marvin probably won, you know, uh, two minutes and 15 seconds of probably eight rounds. Right. You know, but Ray won the other 45, and those are the ones the judges saw it. All right, fair enough. Uh, a, a perfectly reasonable answer, and uh, uh, yeah, I mean, it's one of those fights that uh, people will never, ever stop debating uh, how they felt about it, but uh, yeah, Ray definitely did what he set out to do, um, and uh, this has been great. I can't thank you enough, Barry. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to co-host with me, and uh, and hey, now you get to add podcast co-host to your resume, which I'm, I'm sure has long I been a career, go- career goal of yours. Yeah. Thank God people will stop asking me about Ivan Drago. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I I know better now than to, uh, to to lean on that. But yeah, now that you've got podcast co-host on your resume, uh, the, that whole Rocky That's Four it. fight slips off. Yeah, I have arrived. I have arrived. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> well, this has been great. Have a, have a great show this Friday, uh, Barry. And uh, and thanks again for coming on the podcast with me. Thank you much. I hope I see you soon, Eric. Absolutely. Take care, Barry. Bye bye. All right. My thanks again to Barry. And before I dive into this past weekend's fights, a reminder that for the Showbox fights Barry and I previewed, you can pick the winners and take home cash and prizes. Kieran and I will not be making our official predictions this week for obvious reasons. We will both accumulate zero points in our head-to-head picks competition, but I do intend to accumulate points on DraftKings in the Showtime Boxing Pick'em Contest, where... Not to brag, but I'm in 49th place overall right now out of many thousands. So, uh, yeah, come at me, bro. Anyway, you go to DraftKings.com Showtime and pick winners and methods of victory in all three fights on Friday's Showbox card. And you can win your share of $5,000 in prizes for the week and try to keep pace in the year-long competition for a shot at the grand prize, a trip to every Showtime championship boxing event in 2020. Again, that's DraftKings.com Showtime. Okay, time to talk about this past weekend's fights, and thinking Tyson Fury versus Otto Wallin is a reasonable enough place to start, so 
lots to dig into here. Tom Schwartz 2.0, this was not. And I'm going to sound like I'm cranking out some revisionist history here to make myself look good. But I wish I'd recorded a podcast Friday night because after watching Valine at the weigh-in, I was pretty confident he was going to put up a decent fight. Not as good as the one he ultimately did put up, but he carried himself at that weigh-in with such an air of confidence and, and calm. He was the challenger, yes, but he wasn't the opponent. You know, he, he was expected to lose, but he wasn't coming there to lose. That's the vibe I got. And sure enough, he came out in the first round and took the fight to Fury. Aggressively, but not recklessly. And... I thought he won the first two rounds. Then, in the third, enormous cut opens up over Fury's right eye. Replays clearly show that a clean left hook did it. Referee originally rules it to be from a clash of heads, because, honestly, cuts that look like that almost always come from clashes of heads. But replay is in effect in Nevada, so after the round, they get it right. From there... It's just a really dramatic fight. Not a great fight. You know, it was sloppy and uneven, as Fury fights tend to be, but he's battling through the blood. Valine is holding his own, uh, although losing round after round from about the sixth on and starting to tire around the seventh or eighth. But he never wilts, and he comes back and hurts Fury a bit in the twelfth. Uh, the cut gets worse and worse as the fight goes on. There's blood everywhere. Fury also gets a second cut on the eyelid, but they don't stop it, and they never really seem that close to stopping it. In the end, Valin lasts the distance. Fury wins a decision. Eight rounds to four seem fair to me, and that is how one judge had it. Uh, another had it 9-3, fine, and the third had it 10-2. That was a little unfair to Valin, uh, but it's immaterial. Fury was the clear winner. He retains the arguable lineal heavyweight title. Uh, more on that in a bit. Uh, so, first thing here, let me commend the two fighters. Valin was legit. He is legit. Uh, he might be a top 10 heavyweight. He hadn't had a chance to prove it before this, uh, but now he had that chance, and, and we saw that he can fight. He had a plan. He executed Maybe if he'd had a bit of big fight experience prior to this, he would have paced himself a little better. But this is a guy who's 28 years old and has some tools and wasn't awed one bit against arguably the best fighter in the division and looks like he'll be a factor in the heavyweight picture for a while. I loved his quote afterwards. He, he was asked uh, what those 12 rounds told him, and he said, it tells me that nobody can question my heart and question that I'm a good fighter. Uh, damn straight. He, he proved he belongs. He proved he ain't no Tom Schwartz any more than Dan Quayle was Jack Kennedy. Uh, deep cut there for the 1988 debate heads out there. Uh, Fury, meanwhile, this guy faced massive adversity in this fight. Uh, with a cut like that, he should have panicked. Uh, normal people panic. Most fighters panic at least a little under those circumstances. He didn't. He got a little rattled, but mostly he just stepped up the urgency and Tyson Fury he bit down and he fought he snapped in those right hands over the top he got inside and muscled Valine and leaned on him and wore him down it wasn't pretty but it was effective uh, anyone who says this was a bad performance by Fury I'll strongly disagree it was a bad start a, a very slow start he didn't box terribly well overall but he fought tremendously 
I don't think his stock goes down at all off this unexpected struggle. Um, all right, so, so let's get to the main thing here. Uh, let me read my tweet. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to be that guy. Here's what I tweeted late in the fight, I, I think around the 11th round. If Tyson Fury wasn't the heavyweight champ worth many millions in future fights, or if that cut had been from a clash of heads, this thing would have been stopped a long time ago. So that was my tweet. I got a lot of reaction to that one. First off, let me get this out of the way. If your first reaction is to say that Fury isn't a champ because he doesn't have an alphabet belt, well, you're kind of missing the point of the tweet. But also, if you'll recognize some guy who won a random vacant interim belt against the 25th best guy in his division, but you won't recognize that there's at least a little legitimacy to the guy who ended Vladimir Klitschko's decade-long reign and hasn't lost since, I can't help you. Uh, But back to the point of my tweet. That cut was nasty. It was deep. It was wide. It was messy and bloody. If Otto Wallin had had the same exact cut, I'm pretty sure the fight would have gotten stopped at some point. They would have said, not worth it, live to fight another day, we don't want him to lose an eyeball, etc. But for Fury, with the lineal heavyweight title at stake, or at least with his undefeated record at stake and his claim to being the best in the world and tens of millions of dollars in a rematch with Deontay Wilder at stake, they let him lose five pints of blood. Uh, As at Bob Crow RMT tweeted to me in response, Uh, Quote, some jobber on the undercard would not have gotten the leeway that Fury did. Absolutely. Uh, Agree agree with that completely. Uh, Another good tweet from at KIL787 reminding me that this was, quote, just like when Joe Hutchinson cut Arturo Gatti in a tune-up fight for Gatti in Canada. One of the worst cuts I'd ever seen, and yet the authorities let Gatti continue for the decision win. The A-side always gets an advantage. Uh, That's the end of the tweet there from at KIL787. Yeah, I remember that fight well. Good call. Uh, The other part uh, of my tweet uh, that I haven't zeroed in on uh, just yet here was simply pointing out that it would have been stopped if the cut had been from a clash of heads. Uh, In that case, uh, you know, if it's round seven, eight, nine, the blood is getting as bad as it was, uh, but Fury is clearly ahead on points, I'm sure the Fury corner wouldn't have fought so hard to keep the fight going. The officials also, I think, would have been perfectly fine with uh, taking a good look at that thing and maybe waving it off and going to the cards. And, you know, that, that question of whether the cut was caused by a head clash or a punch brings up an element of this drama that must be addressed. Uh, ESPN's Bernardo Osuna became a part of the story here. I didn't see this widely reported on, um, but... Uh, it certainly popped up in some corners of Twitter, at least, talking about this. I believe it was between the fourth and fifth rounds. Fury's corner told him the cut was from a clash of heads. ESPN picked this up, so they sent Osuna in to see if, indeed, that's what his trainer, Ben Davison, believed. And in interviewing him, Osuna corrected him, told him, no, the commission checked the replay, it was from a punch. I'm not sure how mad anyone should be at Osuna. You know, once his producer sends him to that corner, if Davison says something factually incorrect, are you supposed to not correct him? And maybe Osuna shouldn't have been sent in there. Uh, There certainly are ethical issues with a journalist interfering in the outcome. But instead of getting mad at Bernardo or even at ESPN, my biggest bone to pick is with the commission. 
Several minutes have passed since they made the replay ruling. How has it not been communicated to the coroner by the commission, by Bob Bennett or whoever, that, oh, by the way, if the fight gets stopped, you lose by TKO? That has to be communicated. The commission, that's who I think we should be pissed at here. Uh, You know, maybe ESPN shouldn't have interfered, but it would have been moot if the Nevada commission had done its job. Final subject to discuss here. The question of what does this mean for Wilder Fury 2? Fury throughout the date of February 22nd, 2020, a couple of months ago for that rematch. That's five months from now. I'm no doctor, but chances are the cut is not healed well enough to start sparring in time to fight on February 22nd. Uh, And by the way, that date was a little optimistic anyway, considering it looks like Wilder Ortiz 2 is going to happen in late November. So Deontay would have to come out pretty unscathed to fight Fury on a three-month turnaround. He could, if he had to, but there's no deadline, really. The fight didn't have to be February 22nd, so it was probably going to be more like March or April. Anyway, now, with this cut, yeah, I'd say an April time frame is more realistic for Wilder Fury, too. Okay, uh, that was kind of a lot on that fight, um, but there was a lot to talk about. But Having spent a good uh, 10 minutes or so breaking that single fight down, I'm going to go into relative lightning mode for the rest of last weekend's fights. And let's start with the Fury-Valin undercard. Emmanuel Navarrete stopped Juan Miguel Alorde in the fourth. Not a lot to say about that. Just two different levels of boxer here. It went according to script. And hey, uh, I say uh, let's get Navarrete out there again in four weeks. Uh, that, can, that can be his thing, the guy who fights every month. Uh, a more competitive bout on that undercard. Jose Zapeda outpointed Jose Pedraza over 10 rounds. All three judges had a 7-3. to three. They got it right. I guess you could call this a mild upset, uh, but Zapeda is really coming into his own. I would have no problem with a rematch between him and Jose Ramirez. But yeah, Pedraza was... Just a little lethargic in this one, especially in the early going. Uh, Zapata jabbed well. He was sharp. He worked the body. He deserved this one. Uh, moving over to the DAZN show that competed against the ESPN Plus card. First off, the co-feature that didn't happen. Avery Sparrow got arrested the morning of the weigh-in for a gun charge that had been hanging over his head. His fight with Ryan Garcia was canceled. Garcia was not happy about this, and a rift between Garcia and Golden Boy Promotions, who failed to line up a backup opponent, Seems to be growing, um, but I haven't really had time to dig in too deep on the details. I don't always trust what these sides float to people in the media. This is maybe a subject to dig into deeper at another time once I've had more time to examine it. Uh, But it left us with only one fight on this card that's really worth talking about. That was Jaime Munguia versus Patrick Alati, the main event. Munguia scored two knockdowns in the third and got a stoppage in the fourth. and. This didn't move the needle for me at all. I don't think this elevated Munguia in any way. He's one of those fighters who he has certain styles and levels that he looks like a beast against. And then he has certain styles and a certain level where he just scrapes by. And every fighter has those certain styles they struggle with. But the problem is with Munguia, it's feeling like a pretty large subset of all junior middleweights and middleweights fall into the category of guys who can cause him problems. Alati wasn't really one of them, ultimately. Munguia did come out looking like the beast version of himself, but he also looked really deeply flawed early in the fight. He was easy to hit, as he always is. His punches were telegraphed. 
Longtime listeners and readers of mine know how I feel about so-called size advantages, that I think size is overrated, but it mattered in this fight. These guys looked like they were separated by three weight classes. This looked like a middleweight against a junior welterweight. So, you know, Munguia's punches hurt Alati. Almost everything he landed hurt him. And when Alati landed, uh, and he landed very clean on a few occasions, those punches had no effect on Munguia. Uh, anyway, good surrender by Alati's corner. They saw that it was over, even if Alati was physically capable of continuing. So good job by them. Uh, all in all, a mediocre win for Munguia, if you ask me, uh, which you didn't. Uh, but by listening to this podcast, it's implied that you've asked me what I think. Uh, unless you only tuned in hoping to hear Kieran's thoughts or, or, or Barry Tompkins' thoughts on this. In which case, you are SOL, as they say. Uh, jumping quickly to the Friday DAZN card. In the main event, Devin Haney took care of business against Zar Abdulayev in four rounds. Not much to say about the fight. Haney continues to look like the absolute goods. I drafted him in the Rising Stars draft for a reason. But I do have something to say about Haney calling out Vasily Lomachenko afterward. Uh, first, good for Haney. <laughs> That's ballsy, and he seems to mean it. But it ain't happening anytime soon. Lomachenko has other guys who make more sense for him at the moment. I'd say we're a year away from being able to realistically discuss Lomachenko Haney, and that's good news for Haney. He might think he wants that fight now, but he doesn't want that fight now, or at least he shouldn't want that fight now. Uh, the other thing, calling him No Machenko, eh, eh, uh, that, that nickname doesn't get the Raskin steal of approval. First of all, Lomachenko isn't really saying no. He's just saying, I have more lucrative options at the moment that are easier fights to make. And second, the nickname Nomaschenko already exists. Someone came up with it when Loma made a bunch of opponents in a row quit. And that's much more clever than Nomachenko. So I'm not going to endorse the less clever cousin of an existing nickname. One other note on this fight, speaking of Nomases, uh, Abdullayev quit in this one, but I'll hearken back to what Andy Lee said on this podcast last week, that maybe we shouldn't give guys such a hard time for waving the white flag. Uh, so in this case, I absolutely won't. Uh, he had either a busted nose or a busted cheekbone or both, and he wasn't in the fight. It was only going to get worse. There's a time and place to fight through the pain. This wasn't it. Maybe it shows he isn't made of the same stuff as Arturo Gatti, but few are. So... You know, I have no problem with Abdullayev not being foolishly brave here. And had he been, I would like to think his corner would have prevented it from going on much longer. Uh, on that undercard, we had a fun, fast-paced women's featherweight fight between Amanda Serrano and Heather Hardy. Or maybe I should call her Heather Hart-y. Um, yeah, I know. Just as lame as Nomachenko. Uh, but what a heart, seriously on Heather Hardy. She took a beating. Serrano was just way too good, as most people expected she would be. Serrano won a lopsided 10-round decision. She remains in the conversation for pound-for-pound pound queen. And Heather Hardy, she's not so young anymore. She's 37. She's no longer undefeated. Might not be a bad time to think about what comes after boxing. Uh, one other fight worth mentioning on the card. Michael Hunter gave away 37 pounds and beat up Sergei Kuzmin pretty good. Knocked him down, won nine rounds out of 12. Hunter is a former cruiserweight who's competing at heavyweight now, and he can fight. I think he can make a little noise in the division, even if he's undersized for a modern heavyweight. Uh, 
And this speaks well to what Oleksandr Usyk, the only fighter to defeat Hunter so far, is going to be capable of at heavyweight. Uh, by the way, great to see Hasim Rahman in Hunter's corner. We also had Eric Morales in Munguia's corner this weekend. All the ex-champs of my generation are making the transition. Seeing them makes me feel that much more washed. But uh, I've, I've retained my waistline better than they have, so at least I have that going for me. All right, that is more than enough of hearing my voice without a voice of reason to balance it out. Let's wrap things up with not one but two voices of reason. In this previously recorded interview, here's Kieran to introduce our interview guest. Next year, the International Boxing Hall of Fame in Canastota, New York, will celebrate the 30th anniversary of its opening. That's 30 years of magnificent June induction weekends. And if you've never been to a Boxing Hall of Fame induction weekend, you need to go. And uh, not to mention a year-round home to the legends of boxing. And we are pleased to be joined now on the Showtime Boxing Podcast by the Executive Director of the International Boxing Hall of Fame, Ed Brophy. Ed, welcome. It's glad to be with you. It's glad, uh, always glad to talk boxing uh, with boxing fans. So I'm uh, delighted to uh, chat about the Hall of Fame. Excellent. Well, let's start with some of the recent changes at the Hall. Uh, fighters can now be inducted three years after they retire instead of five years. And more than just three modern fighters per year can get in if they get a high enough percentage of the vote. My personal opinion is that working in a percentage threshold is a good thing, but I'm not sold on the change from five years to three. Not that I'm against it. I'm just not sold. So um, sell me. And uh, in general, what was the thinking behind making these changes? Well, uh, five years was a kind of a tradition going back to uh, baseball fame when they started in 1939, and, and they mm -hmm. did five years. And, and other museums started to follow suit of the uh, baseball fame. Then some uh, along the way um, uh, started three years. NASCAR's three years, uh, hockey's three years. Uh, recently, basketball went from five to three. Um, a lot of the reasoning was that uh, you need time after someone's career to, for historians to analyze uh, where does one set in, in the history of the sport. And, uh, uh, and a lot of the research was done back then by different methods of newspapers and conversations and letter writing and then phone calls and, and things like that. Well, today's technology is at the palm of your hand and, and uh, uh, very, uh, uh, should I say, in a shorter period of time, much shorter, uh, today's uh, ways of technology or analyzing somebody's career and placing them uh, in history of if their Hall of Fame status. Um, and uh, so technology is one thing. Uh, the other thing is that a boxer who uh, hits that level in his career of Hall of Fame status, he normally continues to fight, uh, and then he has a few extra fights past that before he retires. And uh, five years out is a long time uh, for that mm. person to receive that award. And mm. uh, then if that fighter makes a comeback in between, maybe after uh, three years and makes a comeback for a couple of years or so and then waits another five years. So now he's ten years past really when he really reached that level of Hall of Fame status. So uh, the thought was uh, let that boxer receive that honor at a reasonable time in today's time of going into the year 2020, uh, it seems that it's more fitting, it's more appropriate, it's more fair to the boxer, and uh, and uh, fits today's time. And uh, basketball recently did it, 
and uh, we followed behind basketball as other ones had already done it. Uh, we think it's a good idea, and we've uh, received a lot of good applause by it. Uh, and I think with time, it's going to be exciting right from the first year all the way through. And fighters who are retiring, once they're out three years and they're considered to be placed on a ballot, if they go into the Hall of Fame, uh, the following year in June is actually four years uh, since uh, they had their uh, last fight of a, of a year. And, of course, prior to that, so many years back, is when they reached that level. So three years is, is still a long time, especially if you're going into the Hall of Fame in Canastota the following year in your fourth year. Uh, we, think, we think it makes a very good sense, and uh, we're very pleased with, with that decision. Yeah, I, I asked you to sell me, and uh, you did it. You, you sold me. <laughs> nice. That's a pretty good case. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> um, that's that's not the only big change that that you announced uh, for for this next round. Uh, the other big change is the addition of categories for female fighters. There's a modern category and a trailblazer category. So, is it your expectation or that a, a woman boxer will be inducted every year going forward, or or not necessarily, uh, given you know the size of the talent pool to this point? Will some years have one and some years not? Yeah, no, there will be every year, but the but the number going in will be less uh, because of that reasoning of, of the of the pool and the and the, and the length of the uh, female boxing. There will be a, uh, a trailblazers category for those early on fighters uh, up to uh, 1989, and and then thereafter will be considered modern. Uh, in the trailblazers, there'll be one per year. Uh, for the first three years, and then it will be decided at that point, is it on an annual basis or is it once every five years uh, okay. in the Trailblazers? There's only a handful, should we say, that would be Hall of Fame status in the history of boxing in the Trailblazers uh, era. Uh, but then, of course, 1989 on, uh, that has grown tremendously. It's been 30 years. It's been internationally. Uh, the, the, the pool has gotten much bigger uh, uh, the, uh, uh, so there's many names, uh, that have uh, been out of boxing in the last 30 years who have retired, who really, uh, reached a level in their particular, uh, field, uh, to be considered to be placed on a ballot. And that modern ballot, uh, there will be two going in, uh, okay. each year. So, uh, limited compared to the, uh, uh, old-timer category and the modern category of the boxers that we have had uh, of categories for. Uh, but definitely uh, each year there will be, uh, in the modern category, two uh, female boxers going in. And there's fighters today that are nearing their end of their career as female boxers and, of course, tomorrow and the next year and next year. So uh, there will always be, uh, at two going in, uh, a, a very uh, high level of achievements by those who will be placed on the ballot. And future will tell if it uh, goes um, uh, up a number uh, to allow uh, more or is it stay the same, but it is less right now, but definitely an accurate number to give that recognition to the uh, female boxers who are athletes who have uh, put their, uh, their uh, heart and soul and, and love of a sport into becoming an athlete of a boxer and uh, uh, rightly so, when one uh, has achieved uh, a level of being very good at it and being excellent at it and being among the best, they should be rewarded equally the same and equally here at the Hall of Fame. And so we're very delighted that there will be the women's category, there will be a separate uh, uh, voting committee because there will be historians of the, the women's history of boxing who are knowledgeable in that field. And uh, there will be a display in the museum 
of the early days of the, the trailblazers all the way to the modern. So the whole history of female boxing will be uh, uh, on display uh, starting for next year's induction weekend that fans will learn of the sport. And, of course, those who make the Hall of Fame wall in the category of the women's category. So it's exciting for the sport. It's exciting for female boxers, athletes in any sport, try to achieve to reach the highest level, and the female boxers have that opportunity now. Um, so next question is not a Hall of Fame question. It's just a, a boxing question. You, you've been around this sport for a long time, and I've seen you at quite a few fights over the years. I, I know you've been to some damn good ones. Do you have an all-time favorite fight that you were ringside for? Well, you know, I, I, I am asked that question often, and uh, my, my answer is pretty much the same. It's, it's, it's hard to pick one particular fight. Um, because there's been some classic fights, of course, in, in boxing history, and, and you try to weigh one against the other. It's very, very, very tricky. Uh, uh, you know, uh, but I but I will say that uh, uh, Marvin Hagler versus Tommy Hearns at Caesar's wow. Palace yeah. was uh, was quite a fight. That I think that uh, once um, uh, you stood up, you didn't sit back down <laughs> during that round. I don't remember. I don't remember sitting in a chair. I remember standing up. So I think everybody was standing up, and 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 only for a few different uh, moments or seconds that did just sit back down. Then you were back up on your feet, and you stood on your feet. So that one, I guess, for that reason, uh, was was spectacular. And of course, fights at Caesar's Palace during the, during those days in in the eighties uh, was quite something. It was magical, and two magical champions, two two Hall of Famers. Uh, today uh, as Hall of Famers, and uh, uh, that was one, one one special night, exciting night for the sport and uh, for myself to witness. And uh, but there's there's been some great ones over the years, so uh, the list would go on and on. And uh, we try to preserve all those great fights here at the Hall of Fame, so fans daily that come in uh, recall those fights, uh, whether it was in the 80s or back to the 50s or beyond that, going back to the early days or more of the modern day fighters. It's uh, well well recorded and well. Uh, um, uh, displayed here at Hall of Fame for fans to enjoy. Right. And what about um? So and obviously, uh, you know, most of your traffic, I assume, or your your biggest weekends or your, or your biggest days are induction weekends. And I'm wondering if you have any all-time favorite induction weekend memories. I mean, I'm sure they're all special in their own way. They're, they're all fantastic experiences. But is there maybe a particular fighter's induction that moved you, or something crazy that happened on an induction weekend, and anything that really comes to mind? Well. You know, again, uh, it's it, it, the, the, there's there's uh, great moments in, in boxing and, and, and great championship fights that we talked about, and there's great moments of, of Hall of Fame weekends. And uh, and uh, right when you start thinking of one, you think of another one that you know <laughs> very emotional. Some of the the inductees, uh, you know, when they, it's very emotional. They, uh, you know, it's like when you watch uh, the induction of the baseball fame or football fame, and there's uh, moments where that inductee is emotional because uh, mm. it's the highest honor. And, and uh, same thing on the bandstand on the grounds Hall of Fame. Uh, uh, there's been some uh, moments where I think everybody broke down and just hearing the stories of the inductees of what it meant to them and, and they shared parts of their career. And uh, and uh, so, you know, it, 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 there's moments where uh, an international uh, uh, boxer was electing Hall of Fame at different times where, you know, they, they, they've made that journey uh, over here to – Boxing's hometown of Canada sort of received that honor, and to see them smile, uh, 
uh, as they as they're a champion again. And I think that you know that's a lot of what Hall of Fames are about. Your mm-hmm. your return to the Hall of Fame where you're you're a champion in your sport, and it's so great to see on induction weekend uh, they're champions again, and 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 you see it in their 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 smiles and and on their induction speeches. And uh, uh, there've been there's been several that always been magical, and of course. Uh, some some names like in other sports are maybe more recognizable, uh, and some maybe call say more popular because they were seen more on TV or whatever it might be, and that could be in baseball, football, basketball, any sport. Um, equally the same, equal the the same level of uh, of achievements uh, is is another inductee, and uh, to see both of them you know receive that same honor and to see them both uh, be applauded. And uh, it's really just magical. So there's uh, a lot of great weekends, uh, and I could name some that relate to the Oscar De La Hoya, Felix Trinidad years, the, mm-hmm. the Mike Tyson, Julio Cesar Chavez, the, um, you know, all the different names that people would recognize the names. But then I could recognize, you know, other particular weekends that were maybe not as the uh, recognizable as high levels in Oscar De La Hoya or the names I mentioned, but equally as well-attended and well-rounded uh, in what a Hall of Fame weekend means. And that's the special part that say, I sometimes uh, feel real uh, good about when I try to recall certain weekends. It's sometimes equally those weekends as equal to the other weekends right. that makes it special. So, you know, everybody's got a story and, uh, of, when they, of their fighting days. And, uh, you know, there are plaques on the Hall of Fame wall. They receive the Hall of Fame ring. Uh, there's, you know, fans that come from all over the world to then look at that wall and learn of their history. And, and uh, there was a visitor today at the museum that came all the way from Scotland, made a trip. Him and his daughter flew from Scotland to New York, New York to Syracuse, Syracuse, a cab to the museum this morning and spent most of the day. Uh, then they decided to have a late lunch at Graziano's uh, restaurant <laughs> across the road to look at some more pictures on the wall of boxing and have a great meal. Then they're off back to the airport, wow. taking a, a flight to New York City, then back to Scotland. They made it purposely from Scotland. So they enjoyed, of course, the, the robes of uh, Ken Buchanan and all different history, and they just enjoyed it. So, you know, it's, 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 a, it's really exciting uh, when the fans are smiling because of uh, – the memories they have when they're walking through the museum of when uh, certain fighters re- may recall memories of them watching the fight, or they may recall memories of them with their father watching fights, and then it starts, you know, it's a memory of their father. So, um, you know, that's what Hall of Fames are all about, whether you walk the halls of the baseball, football, basketball, soccer, Hall of Fames, the Boxing Hall of Fame is equally the same. Uh, uh, you know, the mission is the same, to serve in an educational manner and an entertaining way. And uh, uh, the fellow today and his daughter that came all the way from, from Scotland was, uh, was a, a great experience for them and, of course, a great feeling for the Boxing Hall of Fame. Right. Wow, that's an incredible story about those folks from Scotland. Um, one familiar face to Hall of Fame visitors is local champion Billy Backus, who I know was one of your heroes growing up. And uh, his biggest win was upsetting Jose Napoli's for the welterweight title in 1970. The Hall of Fame flag recently flew at half-mast for Napoli's. Any memories of Jose coming to the Hall of Fame that stand out for you? And have you spoken to, to Billy since Jose's passing? Uh, haven't spoken to Billy on that on that part, uh, but uh, Billy uh, often uh, we stay in touch, and uh, mm-hmm. we probably were both thinking the same when we heard that passing uh, of Jose. But uh, Jose, you know, when he came to Canastota in 1990, he was among the first class of inductees, and he was the last 
a person of that class to uh, pass away. So <laughs> that entire class of 1990 have passed away, and they were legends wow. uh, in that first year. Uh, Muhammad Ali, Joe Frazier, Jake LaMotta, Jersey Walcott, Willie Pep, Ike Williams, uh, Billy Kahn, uh, Jose Napoles, all the way down the list. Wow. And Jose, so when he was here, when he was here in Canastro in 1990, it was a... Uh, it was a it was a very interesting and, and exciting feeling uh, because he was part of Canastota because of the fights two fights with Billy Bacchus the first fight in Syracuse when Billy wins the title and then the rematch in California when Napoli's wins so Jose Napoli's has always been a a, a piece of Canastota and for me personally uh, being at both of those fights and uh, uh, living and breathing boxing and 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 of course. Uh, the heroes of Canastota and the champions. And so Napoli's was always part of Canastota. And then when he returned during the uh, years after his induction, it was always special because he was part of Canastota. Just like when Gene Fomer would come often uh, to Canastota as a returning Hall of Famer, him and Carmen Basilio had great fights, and uh, just like Tony DeMarco. People that fought Billy Bacchus or fought Carmen Basilio uh, when they've returned here, uh, it's part of Canastota because it's just you know it's, it's just you know we we talked about those names uh, so much. So, uh, but uh, Jose Napoli's uh, Mandaclia, smooth as butter. They nicknamed him. He was one of the great slick fighters, and boy, he was a it was it was you know the the art of boxing when when he performed, and he was one of the great fighters. And uh, uh, sadly uh, passed away, but here at the Hall of Fame. Uh, he'll be remembered for many generations, and uh, uh, just like, uh, it was great memories of him being in Canastota, and always very honorable, and uh, he was very respectable to everybody in Canastota, and Canastota people was, were thrilled to see him each time he was he was here. Mm. Um, as with any Hall of Fame, not every inductee is universally universally acclaimed. Um, one of the Hall's more controversial inductees uh, was Sylvester Stallone in 2010, and there were some people, although not, I think, a lot of fighters. A lot of fighters, quite especially younger ones, were quite supportive of it. But nonetheless, I think there were some people who were offended that an actor who played a boxer was getting a plaque. Uh, did you hear some of those complaints? And does it ever yeah. bother you when there's a degree of well, backlash? Yeah, I, I, uh, uh, I, I heard them, but it, it didn't bother because what it did was it took time to explain. He mm. was not elected in as a boxer. He, his name was not on a ballot of a boxer. He was on the ballot as a, uh, as, as a screenwriter. So his, his, like when we have the uh, broadcasters, journalists, screenwriters, uh, historians, uh, and of course, uh, you know, referees, trainers, different ones outside of uh, the role of a boxer. So he, I, people were confused when when he was mm. elected in. Of course, the first thing they thought of him in the movies as a boxer. So they thought that possibly, well, he was elected as a boxer, and, he, and and why would he be elected as a boxer? And rightly so. Why would he be elected as a boxer? He, he he played the role of a boxer in the movie, but his election, he went on the ballot as a screenwriter, and rightly so, I believe that the voters all did a fantastic job uh, of voting on that committee because as a screenwriter, his contribution to boxing, yeah. I think, is unarguable that, he, you know, the movies Rockies, uh, the Rocky movies, uh, just the one alone uh, in 1976, the first Rocky was, was you know, put, a, put such an impact into the sport that carried on its own the first movie, and then, of course, continuing through, and to this day, uh, we have fans that walk in the museum and just, you know, talk about uh, how did they become a fight fan? Well, it was because of the movie yeah. Rockies. And even today, the young ones who haven't even gone to a fight yet, they like boxing. And I'll say, well, geez, what, did you, what was it that made you like boxing? 
oh, I stood to this, you know, I, I watched the, the Rocky film. So, you know, obviously they continue to play. So all these years later, con- it continues to be a contribution to the boxing. But so, um, so the answer to, that, to your question is that uh, uh, he, was, he was not elected as, as a boxer. Uh, and we tried to, uh, you know, it was very clear in the press conference, uh, very clear in our, in our wording. Uh, some people, of course, you, know, you, you read the headline, elected in, right. and maybe didn't take the time to read the remaining of it. But most people, of course, all the voters, and, and most people understood uh, that he was elected in as a screenwriter. But, of course, um, he, he did such a great job. Not only was he a, a screenwriter, he was the producer of the movie, and then he played in the movie. Yeah. And, most, and most remembered, of course, playing in the movie, most people didn't realize that he was the director and he was a screenwriter. So very deserving screenwriter, and that's why he's on the Hall of Fame wall, and I think everybody uh, then who did understand or to this day maybe do- doesn't or now hearing this explanation would surely agree that Sylvester Stallone is a natural to be as a screenwriter elected into the International Boxing Hall of Fame. Right. Well, speaking of that, that non-participant observer category, we have one last question for you, Ed. How much are Kieran and I helping our chances of becoming Hall of Famers one day by inviting you on our podcast? Because we'll gladly have you on every week if it makes a <laughs> well, difference. I'll, 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 I'll say this to, to kind of sum up your, your chances, and I'm not one to be able to vote or participate in, 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 in voting. It's done by historians and, and, and journalists and the BWA members of the Boxing Red Association and historians around the world. But, uh, of course, we get a lot of nominations here, and we, we try as Hall of Fame to kind of move the process along and kind of move it to the uh, end result that uh, ballots then can be prepared and go out to all the voters. But in regards to uh, the, as your, your fun kind of a question, uh, I'll give you a fun answer back, is that the two of you, and, I, and I'll be a little more serious about it, is the two of you, of course, have made uh, uh, you know, uh, an impact with, with both of you being as, as journalists and, and in the business and, and, and doing, doing uh, very well and very respectable. So I would say that time is on your side if you continue to make your achievements because everyone who goes into the non-participant category, those kind of categories, are, are ones who have made a contribution for a number of years at a steady space, steady uh, pace, and that was well received by the boxing fans of liking their material and liking the way they, you know, presented boxing stories and interviews and so on. So, the two of you are are always uh, doing it. You've done it for many years, and uh, I, I'm sure with years in front of you, uh, conducting the way your your performance have been, you're surely making it a, 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 a much better opportunity to earn your way into the Hall of Fame. So good luck with that. So Showtime needs to give us a 20-year extension on our contracts just to increase our chances. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> uh, Ed, look, thanks for everything you do to preserve boxing history and, and boxers' memories. And, and thank you so much for joining us here on the Showtime Boxing Podcast. It was great to have you on. Well, I have enjoyed it any time. And uh, boxing is the greatest sport there is. There is no other sport that speaks the language of, uh, of, of life the way boxing does. And that's what makes it special. So life is a struggle sometimes. It's exciting at times. It has its challenges. And boxing is exactly the same way more than any other sport. So uh, it defines life, and uh, it's a wonderful sport. And uh, best wishes to everybody who loves the sport of boxing. Well said. Thanks, Ed. And that will do it for this episode of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney and Tompkins and Brophy. 
My thanks again to the great Barry Tompkins for his time. And remember that you can hear Barry, Steve Farhood, and Raul Marquez call the fights on Showbox this Friday at 10.30 p.m. Eastern. Kieran will be back next week. No guest hosts, just the OGs as we recap Showbox and look ahead to the welterweight showdown between Errol Spence and Sean Porter. Until then, thanks for listening.